Hey, Theo bros and Theo sisters. I want to invite you to the Hand to the Plow Conference in Princeton, Illinois, July 22nd through the 24th at Princeton Bible Church. The Hand to the Plow Conference is a gathering of like-minded believers for the purpose of growing in faithfulness to Christ through the expositional preaching of God's Word and fellowship. Join Dr. Dustin Benge, Dr. Jason Allegood, Pastor Chuck Lambert, Pastor Curtis O'Dell, and myself as we teach on the sufficiency of Christ and the call to faithfulness. Here's a sneak peek from Dr. Dustin Bench. When we think about unity within the church, our mind may go first to our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, which abounds with oneness petitions. Now, Jesus prays that believers, he says, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then listen to this final part, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Wow, I I think that's an amazing verse. In other words, the unity of God's people offers a flawless testimony to a lost world that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. We could put it another way. The unity of the church is a testimony of the gospel. We'd love for you to join us. And you can register now by going to handtotheplowconference.com. You can find all sorts of information there, schedule, speaker stuff. Um, You can contact us as well if you have questions. That's handtotheplowconference.com. Nate Pickowitz, welcome to the Theo Bros podcast. It is a real pleasure to have you on. You are officially outing yourself as a Theo Bro by joining this podcast. Are you comfortable with that? Well, I, I don't know if I know what a Theo bro is, but I know you, and I'm happy to be with you on your podcast, so it's good to see you. <laughs> a Theo bro, is, this is what a Theo bro is. You believe that um, Christ is king, you are a lover of Reformed theology, and you have strong biblical convictions, which always makes people angry at you. Are you okay with that? I think I'm all right with that. The only reason I say I think is because when you say Christ is king, there's an eschatological question within that. So, you know, (laughs) no, I I would affirm everything you just said. Yeah, I I believe Christ is king right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. And I believe Christ will be king later, literally physically in the millennial kingdom. Is that where you're at? Amen. I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right. Nate Pickowitz is the pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Gilmanton Iron Ironworks, New Hampshire. So New Hampshire's got some cool city names. Did I say that right? Pretty close. Yeah, Gilmanton Ironworks. Absolutely. I was born and raised here. You say it so fast. Yeah. Flawlessly. Yeah. It, I had to like, as I was writing this down, I'm like, I don't know if I can say this. Gilmanton <laughs> Ironworks. Gilmanton Ironworks. Yeah, that's it. So one of these days, I'm going to write a, a biography about the uh, the first pastor in this town, but very small town. There's about 3,700 people who live here. It's out in the backwoods in New Hampshire. Uh, even people in New Hampshire don't know where this place is. So it's a, a very small town. And uh, we planted a church here in 2013. And uh, when we were coming from another church, actually, they sent us and they said, well, why would you plant a church in Gilmanton? There's nothing there. And I said, well, that's exactly why we're planting a church in Gilmanton, because there's nothing there. There's no gospel. There's no There's no solid Bible churches. So let, let's do it, you know. And uh, by God's grace and kindness uh, we've been able to to roll for t- almost 10 years now so we're really happy about that 10 years and new england's kind of a dry dry spiritually is that right yeah absolutely yeah it's probably it's up there with the pacific northwest but i think we take the cake uh, least churched uh, region in the whole country uh, new hampshire and vermont are usually tied for the worst church attendance professing of professing of faith um, and even just Bible knowledge, uh, biblical affirmation, I mean, just very, very low. Um, but, you know, and I wrote a book about it a couple of years ago called Reviving New England. I talk about sort of the spiritual climate here. But frankly, I mean, I'm actually thankful to be here because I almost feel like as difficult as ministry is, it's actually easier because there's no cultural Christianity. Um, there's, there's not, I don't have pews and pews of people sitting there thinking that they're Christians when they're not. I don't have that problem. Um, Everybody who who walks in, 
They either are there because they want the truth and they love Christ, or they're curious about the truth of the gospel. Um, or, or, you know, it's, it's genuine. You can ask them straight up and they'll tell you. So I, I appreciate the, the honesty of that. I appreciate just the, the, uh, the genuineness of the people that are here. Um, and while you're, you know, you're always going to have false converts and false professors, but it's just not a, it's not the problem that a lot of my friends have in the Bible belt. So, um, mm. even though it's difficult, it's also really great. And I, I wouldn't minister anywhere else. I love being here. Yeah. Okay. So you're not, you're not constantly trying to shake them out of their spiritual sleepiness. Well, I am, but for different reasons. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's what, yeah, it's, what are you uh, preaching through of, right now? Oh, uh, we're going through Matthew right now. Gospel of Matthew. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you, you've written, um, you've written Reviving New England, Why We're Protestant, The American Puritans. You wrote that along with Dustin Bench. Is I, that correct? I did. Yes. And, and then the real reason why I brought you on is I wanted you to talk about R.C. Sproul, Defender of the Reformed Faith, um, which we'll talk about in a bit. You've also written this really important book to me and to my high schoolers because I passed this book out um, everywhere to people I disciple, um, adults, high school age, even some junior hires. Um, you've also written for, for Table Talk in Credo Magazine. Is that right? Yes, I have. Table Talk was the magazine actually started by R.C. Sproul? Yes. Yeah, I was excited to get that that opportunity. And it's uh, I feel like I'm contributing to some kind of a legacy, even just in a tiny little part. I love it. It's cool. Yeah, that's neat. Okay, we're going to start with a recurring segment called Let's Read a Haiku from my, my favorite satirical <laughs> Twitter account. Is that okay? I, I guess if you must. <laughs> I, I will. I, I, I must do it. And, and because... Because you're here. Okay, this is from Twitter account Nate Heikowitz, which your name's already really hard to spell yeah. and sometimes say. And so this, the way that this Twitter account creator was able to smash your name with the idea of haiku is just brilliant. Um, Nate Heikowitz is a satirical account based on you, my friend. <laughs> I know. And, um, it's this, weird. Yeah, I bet it's weird. Every yeah. once in a while, I'll get a favorite from it. And I'll be like, oh, you know, Nate favorited one of my tweets, and it'll actually be from this account. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the creator of this account, I, I believe, is a mutual friend. Yes. He means no harm. Yeah. His name shall remain anonymous. Um, it's important that your listeners know that it's not me. And <laughs> when, when the account came online, it's been online, I don't even know, like a couple of years now. And everybody was like, oh, look what, you know, you made this thing. I'm like, that is not me. That is not me at all. And it took me a while to figure out who it was. I didn't know who it was. And so I didn't follow the account. I didn't interact with the account. I'm thinking this is just some joker. And uh, then when I figured out who it was, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a joker. So, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I know who sense. runs it and I'm, I'm fine with it. It's, it's right. You're fine with it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I brought it up. I, I don't remember which episode I did it. I did it a few episodes back. Uh, this segment and then he messaged me and he he told me who he told me who it was and yeah. so um it is not dustin benge for the record it's not it's not <laughs> dustin benge that would be awesome that would be but awesome that would just be it, they're all awesome Any, yeah, anyone no, it, this true. this account itself is awesome so whether it's dustin benge or whether it's you know um andrew rapaport or yeah, right. dr james white i mean that would be that would be amazing oh man that'd be fun yes Quick trivia, ready? Uh, James White was was my 1689th follower. I don't believe that. That's, That's totally true. It's totally true. Because I, I remember when I got to 1688 and I tweeted, I said, all right, who's going to be my 1689, right? All my Reformed Baptists, who's, gonna, who's it going to be? And the next person who followed was James White. You screenshot that, I screenshot right? it? Oh, I don't know. That was so many years ago. I don't remember, but, <laughs> but I messaged him after. Because, you know, as soon as he followed, I, it opened up DMs, and I just messaged him, and I was like, you won, you're 1689, and uh, he was really gracious about that. So <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. All That's right, really, really let's, special. Let's get this over with. Christian, go to church. Don't watch at home on live stream. Christian, go to church. <laughs> it's totally true. <laughs> totally true. So totally true. Are you going to be closing your church for monkeypox? Uh, no. No. Why not? We're, uh, we're going to do this right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. 
I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's actually a good question because, you know, we, we do have live stream service. And frankly, you know, I know this is a silly question, but it's a, there's a serious answer to it. You know, I think uh, the COVID shutdown, it actually made us, for, for all the terrible things that it did, it actually made the churches, I think, uh, more sympathetic to those who are shut-ins because there are people who really cannot go to church. Uh, either they're, they're homebound, um, they're sick, they can't move, whatever it may be. Uh, they're just too infirm to be there, and so they, they don't have any options. And so live stream has been, you know, a vital thing for those people. But for those people who would just use live stream as an excuse not to not just go to church, but engage in the fellowship and engage in the active participation of worshiping God, listening to his word, praying together, singing together, all those the, the one another things that we're supposed to be doing. Uh, that's I think that's just error, you know, to, to use that as an excuse. But um, but we're going to keep live stream going. But we will not shutter the doors. Uh, we're going to stay open, even if there's only three people there. We'll stay open and uh, and let things just fall where they may. Yeah, and maybe keep your distance a little bit. But again, church is essential. And it is. Um, if if I have to get monkeypox um, to be able to hear the word of God and to hear it preached and and to be taught, I I would gladly take it. <laughs> well, you know, and not to get too far into it, but you know, when we were during the shutdown, I I worked on a house project. I, I fixed up some stuff in my basement. And I was in I was in Home Depot like three times a week and that place is packed. So can't go yeah. to church, but I can go to Home Depot and buy all my supplies when they were cheaper. And everybody's there. No one had a mask on. Everything was fine. It's like that's essential. That's not dangerous. But apparently church is. So once I realized what's going on with that, I'm like, this is this is not right. So thankful that we opened back up again and we haven't shut since. So, yeah. Yeah. It strengthened our ecclesiology for our church. It just made us realize how much. You know, we did, we closed down, we did everything online for a few months, and then we did things in the parking lot for about a month, and then um, we, I think we opened up in June um, completely, and it just, really, we just ached for one another. We yeah. truly ached to be yep. together. Are you a manuscriptor, an outliner, or are you purely extemporaneous when you preach? I am full handwritten manuscript. Okay. Why do you do that? Um, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not a big tech guy. So when I started preaching, I really, I followed Steve Lawson's, uh, method. Now he does, he doesn't do a full manuscript, but he does very, very detailed notes with a fountain pen. And I couldn't afford a fountain pen. So I bought a gel pen back in the day. But, um, and when I say I can't afford a fountain pen, I can't afford some fountain pens, you know? Uh, but you know, I just started writing it down. And at first I was just doing really detailed notes. And then I was finding that as I was writing, not only did I enjoy the, the creative part of it, the process of, of working through the thought and writing it down, but I, you know, there were certain phrases and sentences that I wanted to, to write down and articulate correctly. And I wanted to make sure that my doctrine was, was being conveyed properly and accurately. And so the, the manuscripting really helps me to make sure that my points are there. And frankly, you know, anybody who knows me, knows I can ramble and I can go off track and I can go on, you know, tangents and rabbit holes. And that drives me crazy in a sermon. I can't stand when a, when a preacher just goes off and goes somewhere else that has nothing to do with the sermon and then wanders back. It drives me crazy. It's like you're there to deliver a message. So I, I, I do that. I stick to my notes because I don't want to go off track. I want to stay focused. Now, once in a while, I'll, I'll go off a little bit to make a point or an illustration or, you know, I don't I'm not totally wooden. But I, I really do. I stick to the to the script because I want to make sure that the information is being, you know, uh, communicated accurately, uh, succinctly, powerfully. And uh, the trick is not to preach as though you're reading a manuscript. That takes practice. But uh, but I like it. I like I like the method I'm using. Yeah, uh, I'm a manuscript preacher, too. And, and I have a lot of different reasons for it. one of them is I like some people actually ask for my manuscript after the service. And, oh, OK. Um, it's a, it's a sweet gift to be able to give folks, um, who just want to, want to bask in the truth of God's mm. word. Um, so I, I, I really, um, I'm a manuscriptor. I'm also afraid of saying things I shouldn't say. Yes. <laughs> so, and oh, I, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to drag Christ's name through the mud. And, um, that's just me personally. That's a, that's a, a, a concern that I have for my own tongue. Yes. Um, that's that's actually something I found fascinating about R.C. Sproul. Yes. Um, is in, in your book, this is why I bring it up at all, 
in your book, you mentioned that he mostly preached, you know, for 20 years extemporaneously. Yes. So there's, I read a story, uh, I think it was from Keith Matheson. I don't remember where exactly it came from, but talked about the first time he saw R.C. Sproul. He walked into the pulpit with a note card with three words on it and put it down next to the Bible and never once looked down. And uh, he had the whole thing in his, in his mind. Um, I mean, R.C. was unique, you know, and I think, um, you know, there is a skill set to preaching extemporaneously uh, without notes. Um, but I think, you know, you have to you have to be the right kind of person to do it. You know, and R.C., he didn't just get up there and, and shoot from the hip. You know, he knew he was going to say he understood doctrine. He understood uh, how to communicate doctrine. And I think that comes from years in a classroom where you're just thinking on your feet and you're you're you're, you're teaching people. Um, so he had, he had his, his direction, he had his cadence, you know, where he was going to go. Um, you know, he, he committed large portions of scripture and, uh, and creeds and theology to memory. And so he could just recall, he was like an encyclopedia. He would just recall things as he was thinking and he would tell stories about himself and he would weave things in. And, uh, he was just an amazing communicator. Um, not not a expositor like other expositors, um, but really was committed to unpacking the truths of Scripture, and really was uh, had a firm conviction about that. But yeah, he was uh, he was a remarkable man, and he was able to do it from his memory. Uh, somebody asked him one time; he actually was preaching the Gospel of John, and after one of his sermons, a man walked up to him and said, uh, "Hey, how long did you, did you spend to prepare that message?" And he looked at him and he said, uh, "Well, about five minutes." And then the guy looked shocked and he said, and 25 years, you know, so, you know, he, he had done the study, he had done the work so much so that he could just get up there and open up his mind and just convey what he'd been learning for his whole lifetime. So he was a remarkable gift in that way. Did you ever get to meet R.C. Sproul personally? No, I never did. I never did. I've been uh, following his ministry, I guess at this point for about 12 years and uh, listened to him online and read his books and read Table Talk and never got a chance to meet him. I have had a chance to meet his, his lovely wife, Vesta. Uh, uh, I've known her for, I guess, the better part of a year now. She's been very helpful, uh, just helped me get squared away with the book and very delightful. And uh, just listening to her talk about, about RC and about you know, their relationship and about who he was and, uh, and not just you know, how we see him, but humanly how, how he was. Um, just really a, a delight, but uh, never had the chance to meet him, uh, and uh, I'm sure I will someday. So, that's one of my my one of my favorite aspects of your book, how you talk about his relationship with Vesta, mm. and how Vesta wasn't originally on board with with RC becoming a Christian early in his life, and RC was kind of brought to this point of crisis where he became a Christian and he had to decide whether he was going to stay with her and be unequally yoked or or leave her um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that was a really important moment in his life yeah and he so just to kind of um talk about the process a little bit i pulled a large amount of my material for the book from rc's own writings so um, dr nichols book on rc was not available till the end of my study process so i i used that reference to kind of gain a lot of other additional details that i didn't already have but but I say that because so much of his own life, he's told from his own perspective in writing. And he's told the story about he and his wife uh, many times over in many different books, uh, articles and things like that. And um, I mean, really, you know, R.C. kind of, you know, you can, when, biography's fascinating because you get to see how God unfolds a person's life. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't see it in the moment. You and I, Justin, we don't see how God is unfolding our life as it's happening. But there is a, a, div a divine plan. And when you look back at R.C.'s life, there was a divine plan. And when R.C. loses his father when he's 17, that really shook his whole world up. I mean, that really rocked him and made him begin to question whether or not he believed in God, what God was like. Um, you know, he, he was he kind of gained a rebellious streak a little bit. Uh, not that he was a bad kid, but he just in his heart, he didn't he didn't he wasn't good with this. You know, he was really mm -hmm. broken up. And um, it's not until he gets to college that he hears the gospel realizes that he apart from christ is a dead fallen over tree dead in the woods and he has no hope without christ becomes a christian at that point he's been dating vesta for several years and he kind of hits this crisis point he talks about it in one of his books he just says i was in love with an unbeliever mm. and 
you know, I'm just going to keep on preaching the gospel to her, hope that she, you know, converts. And there was a, the weekend that he's, that she does come to Christ. He had prayed a prayer, uh, Lord, I'm going to go see my girlfriend this weekend. And if she doesn't, if she doesn't become a Christian, uh, then I'm not going to have any choice. I, I have to break up with her. And so he, he was on his hands and knees pleading with God to save Vesta because he really loved her and wanted to stay with her. And they went to a prayer meeting together and she heard the gospel again for the umpteenth time, went home that night and, uh, and just gave her life to the Lord and woke up the next day. They bumped into each other. And, and she said, I, this is what she said. I, I finally know who the Holy spirit is. And he went, yes. what? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and she explained, I, I believe in Jesus and I think I'm born again. I'm a new person. And he was just celebrating and then they got married and, you know, a really cool story, you know, just really remarkable how God yoked them together uh, relatively quickly, which is great. I love the moment that you write in the book where she's, where she's laying in bed, I believe, and, and yeah. she's trying to figure out if this is real or not. Yeah. Kind of almost pinching herself like, is this a dream? Yeah. Or did it, did my, my faith really take? Yes. And then, and then she kind of reevaluates herself and she's like, yes, yes, yeah. I still love, love the Lord. I still love Christ. Yeah, that's right. And even all these years later, I mean, you know, she's she's a little bit older now, but, you know, you talk to her now and she loves Jesus just as much as she always has. And it's uh, it's a very vibrant faith. And uh, it's just really just the kindness of God, really, the, the genuine kindness of God. Yes. Would you classify R.C. as winsome? You know, that's kind of become a byword um, in our circles. And, and I've kind of derided the term a bit. Um but do you see R.C. as a, a, a winsome figure? Uh, R.C. Is, a, is winsome in the way that a lion is winsome. Mm. Um, so, you know, yes, I mean, he one of the themes that I or, or the dichotomy of themes I try to tease out in the book is this notion of grace and truth. You know, and it's a biblical concept. I mean, you know, that's John chapter one, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. But R.C. really tried to embody that where. You know, he wanted to be as kind and winsome and gentle and disarming as he possibly could. And he would get down from the pulpit sometimes, sit down, turn to his wife and say, was I kind enough? He would ask <laughs> her that question. Wow. So he always cared about, you know, relaying truth in a way that was winsome. And he he would attack Arminians like crazy, but he would do it with a smile and he would do it in a, in a way that he, he showed them he loved them. I, I love you. I just think that your doctrine is wrong. And he, and he would do that. So he really he tried to make the obstacle the truth itself and not his own his own way. And I think that's how R.C. could get away with so much, because he would say these things that in other cases would be incendiary. I mean, John MacArthur says something. People freak out. R.C. would say the exact same thing. And somehow they're OK with it because uh, he said it with a smile. And he, he, he was joking and he was laughing and he was teasing. But uh, but then you have that the winsomeness and the gentility and the and the kindness of R.C., but then when you attack the truth, he was fierce, absolutely fierce, like take no prisoners, fierce. And um, and he, I, you know, I, I was able to ask the question, you know, why, why, why was R.C. such good friends with people like John MacArthur and James Boyce? I mean, what, what was it about these men? Well, the answer was because whenever there was a fight, these men were with him and mm -hmm. he did not want to stand alone, but he would stand alone if he had to, uh, because he just, you know, he wanted people to like him, obviously, but not at the expense of truth. And so R.C. was just fierce for the truth. And it did not matter what relationship ended, uh, what organization got rid of him. He didn't care. He cared about the truth. And uh, so I think, you know, winsomeness is fine as long as you don't compromise an inch on the truth. Amen. And one of the themes I think that the principles that come out of your book is the principle of, of loyalty. He was still, even though, you know, through the evangelicals and, and Catholics together kind of controversy, it kind of it kind of pulled him and J.I. Packer and, and Chuck Colson apart. But there was still a friendliness between them. It didn't he didn't completely cut them out of his life, it seems like. Um, but R.C. was was loyal to his friends and, and co-laborers. Um, John Gerstner, his mentor, James Montgomery Boyce, you mentioned, John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. um, did that stand out to you, his loyalty as you were writing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you're when you're writing biography and, you know, and I'm new to the genre. I mean, I'm not I'm not an established biographer, but, you know, and dip my toe in the water. 
you know, you do, you notice themes, you know, you notice things about the person and, you know, you don't want to misrepresent who they were, but, you know, he really did. I mean, there's a, a famous picture of him and Jim Boyce and, you know, Jim Boyce is kind of this sort of, you know, upright and sort of a little bit, um, a little wooden at times. And RC was a lot more jovial. And there's a picture that's in his office of, of uh, RC leaning over. They're about to take a picture and he leans over real fast and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And uh, it shows the picture of Boyce, you know, totally stunned and RC's kissing him on the cheek. You know, so, I mean, he, he loved having his friends. I mean, when Jim Boyce got sick and he wrote him his letter and it, Dr. Nichols encapsulates the letter in his book. I mean, just a, just a very genuine, sweet, uh, funny letter, actually. You know, he teases uh, Boyce as he's dying of cancer. He says, you know, I've always loved you. And, but we both know that, you know, he's talking about uh, the church in Philadelphia, but that was always Barnhouse's church, you know, and teases <laughs> about that. So, you know, he, he had a way of teasing and smiling and joking, but then also at the same time being very sweet and very dear. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, he valued his friends. And uh, I think it's recorded in his, um, his commentary on, boy, I think it was in Luke's commentary, his expository commentary. He actually recounts sort of the the agony of of going through having to decide between the gospel and his friends mm. and I, I i quote most of it in the book because it was just such a dynamic way wow. of him talking about it mm. and um he said you know you just can't budge on the truth and you know even if you have to lose your friends you know lose your position you know nothing is worth the anathema of denying the gospel and um you know, his, his friendship with, with J.I. Packer you know, was, was cordial. Uh, they weren't as deep friends as he was with uh, Chuck Colson. I mean, he had a long history with Chuck Colson. Mm. And when he ever heard that Colson was endorsing and getting behind uh, the ECT document, and not, not the, the public co-belligerent against social evils, but against the, the sort of the stand with Rome on gospel issues, that mm. threw him through a loop. And he's like, you know, what are you doing? I mean, he was really trying to reason with him. But even publicly, I mean, he would not he would not defame his friend. He wouldn't throw his friend under the bus. But he did say, you know, these men have to recant and, and embrace the biblical gospel publicly. And I'm, I'm going to be here for them when they do. But until they do, uh, I'm standing opposed to them. So he, he really had a, a loyalty to his friends, but ultimately a, a greater loyalty to the truth of the word of God. Amen. I, I believe that that comes through beautifully in your book. I, there's a moment that sticks out to me where he is, he's agonizing over the, the ECT document. You know, he's read it over and then he opens up his Bible to Galatians chapter one. Yes. And just rereads and rereads and rereads over and over again, how Paul anathematizes anyone who, who muddies or changes or twists the gospel in any way. And he, he comes to the conclusion that this is what's happening right now with my friends. Um, I mean, what a, a heartbreaking moment, but just it, it just shows what kind of man R.C. was, mm -hmm. that he was, as you said, a, he was winsome, but he was a lion. Nate, we kind of made mention earlier about how God, God in our lives unfolds our lives providentially in just beautiful ways. Um, and he does that with each of us individually, which just points to his glorious sovereignty. I love the way that you lay out um, lay out your book in, in talking about how R.C. Sproul's life kind of tracks with the five solas of the Reformation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, you know, as, uh, as we've kind of alluded to, I mean, R.C. was involved in, you know, I mean, virtually every doctrinal, major doctrinal battle of the, the latter half of the 20th century. I mean, whether he was contending for inerrancy in the 70s, whether he's talking about the holiness of God and the, the sovereignty of God, in election in the 80s or ECT, uh, literally sola fide in the 90s. I mean, he was he was part of everything. Anything that was of substance with the Christian faith, he was a part of it. He wanted to contend earnestly for the faith. So as I was researching and just kind of thinking through, you know, when you write anything, a book or biography, you know, you want to you're, you're trying to figure out how to package the information. And, you know, with this being my first straight biography, I did some biographical work in American Puritans, but when I was trying to think through the layout for, for his life, you know, how do you frame a person's life? You know, how do you make a determination about what periods of time are important and so on and so forth? I noticed that there was the, uh, the inerrancy battle, and I'm like, well, that's sola scriptura. 
then I noticed the EC, uh, ECT battle, which is Sola Fide. And then, and I started to kind of think, I'm like, wait a second. And, and you know, and I, it hit me. I'm like, no, it can't be, <laughs> you know? And, uh, so I, I look and I, I kind of examine the 1980s and I'm like, wow, you know, he, this is really Sola Gratia. I mean, obviously the holiness of God, but, but chosen by God, I mean, he really, he really platforms election and, and Sola Gratia in that period of time that becomes really his, some of his bit, his best work on the doctrine of God. And then you figure the last decade of his life, he's getting his hands into everything. I mean, he's founding a school, he's writing music, uh, he's writing children's books, he's doing international ministry. I mean, he's doing all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, that's Soli Deo Gloria. So I just started to notice that there was a, a pattern. And I'm like, wouldn't it be cool? And, and I thought to myself, would R.C. appreciate uh, if I structured his life around the five solos? Would that be OK? You know, and I, I, <laughs> I thought to myself, I think he'd be OK with that. Um, the only one I really struggled with was, was Sol- Solus Christus because, you know, the 90s is not he's not directly contending for Solus Christus uh, in that decade alone. And really, you know, his battle with Rome was entire his entire life. I mean, he was doing series in the 1970s on Roman the, you know, Catholic theology. But I just really made that sort of a thematic chapter mm. and just tried to teach, you know, through what were his views about Solus Christus, you know, Christ alone. So I, I just tried to be um, as honest uh, to his life. I, you don't want to force something into someone's life that's not there. But I'm thinking, could this be a helpful way to structure and see his life story? And I think it worked. I mean, I, I think it came together okay. Um, and I just felt like, you know, what a way to honor a man who, who fought so vigorously for the truths of the Reformation and to, to model it that way. So uh, I, I really believe that, um, that his life modeled that because it was just so dear to him and it's so important to him. So that was the goal. And, and hopefully that's res- that resonates with people as they read it. Absolutely. It resonated with me. And it was, it was wonderful to just kind of look at how the divinity of Christ, how hard he fought for for the the truth that that Christ is God, and that kind of painted his entire ministry. And I loved how you you made mention of his children's books. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that say to you about a, a theologian like him, a big brained as he is, that he would that he would write children's books? Well, I think you know when it comes to teaching and training and discipling and catechesis, I mean, you know, we're called to, to disciple uh, people from all nations and all ages and everything. And so the big thing with R.C., um, I asked one of his friends one time, you know, what, what was it that made R.C. so special? And his friend told me that, you know, uh, people like John Gerstner, you know, and, and, and a lot of the people in his, his era, um, you know, John Orr and whatnot, you know, they they brought Reformed theology really into the academy again, and they really they started to work through um, bringing that theology in. But R.C. is the one who popularized Reformed theology, mm-hmm. and I think that was what it is. And, and R.C. I mean, he had a he had a doctorandus degree from from Free University in Amsterdam. I mean, he had degrees left and right. I mean, he he loved Latin, he loved study, he loved philosophy. He was a brilliant man. I, I write in the book, he had a John Owen mind with a Billy Graham reach. You know, he, he was mm-hmm. intelligent. Um, but he people don't consider him to be a theologian because he didn't write like any kind of an institutes and he didn't write theology, so to so to speak, for the academy. What he did instead is he took all the pertinent theology that he could find and made it accessible to people in the pew. And, and what better ministry to have than that than to bring all this wonderful theology to people who are in the church and and who else is in the church well you got kids in the church and so he wanted to bring the stories of church history the doctrines of the reformation he wanted to bring that theology down to the level where kids could understand it and, and get excited about it i mean he's got great stories and great illustrations he was a wonderful storyteller so i think he enjoyed that and you know he has he has a whole bunch of grandchildren he would read these stories to them and and he just enjoyed packaging truth in a way that people could mm-hmm. understand and it's a it's a model that I'm trying to follow even in my own ministry of just taking, you know, good doctrine, good history and bringing it to people in a way they can understand. And uh, we need more of that. And R.C. was the master of it. He was a force for popularizing uh, reform doctrine. You write that his defense of reform doctrine actually laid the foundation for the young, restless and reformed movement in the mid 2000s. Um, you seem to kind of intimate that he was a, a little bit reluctant to take that mantle. 
You know, why was that? Well, I think, you know, R.C. didn't he didn't see himself as the spiritual giant that all of his fans did. And I, I mm. use the word fan sort of lightly because, you know, in the Christian world, you know, we, we ought not to adopt the things that the, that the secular world is doing, that the non-believing world is doing. You know, we really we really should not have Christian celebrities in the way that the world does. But the Bible does tell us to give honor to whom honors do. And so when you have a, a theologian, a pastor, a teacher, a discipler that you respect, you should pay them honor. And when you see a person at a conference or, you know, out walking around who's had such a large impact on so many people, it's hard not to get a little, little excited and sort of fanboy around them. Uh, R.C. had lots of those, but he really wasn't aware of his own notoriety. He, he, he didn't he wasn't on Twitter. He didn't engage in all that stuff. You know, he just worked hard. I mean, he spent a lot of his time at home with his family, his wife at Ligonier working. He would travel a little bit, but, you know, he really wanted to just work hard and put out good content. He, he wasn't aware of all the buzz until someone told him, hey, you know, you're a big deal. And he's like, yeah, I don't believe that. Uh, when, when Dr. Nichols went to him, he asked permission. He said, I, I want to write a biography. And Dr. Sproul said, well, that's a great idea. You know, Dr. Nichols, what are you going to make it on? And he says, well, you. He goes, me? <laughs> you know, what are you going to write about? You know, that's going to be boring, you know? And he, no, 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 you know? And so R.C. just didn't, he just didn't uh, think he was a big deal. And he, he, he worked that way. He just didn't see himself in that way. But whenever there was something to get involved in, I mean, I know, remember when, when T4G started at the very, very beginning, they wanted him to be part of it, but they didn't think he would. They just thought it was too small for him. And mm. when he heard about it, he's like, well, I want to go do that. And they're like, oh, we'd love to have you. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. So. He just wanted to be where the action was, but he, he didn't he didn't see himself as a battlefield theologian. He didn't see himself as a titan. Uh, he just wanted to work hard and be faithful and let the chips fall where they may. And uh, and that's what he did. He lived his life that way. Why do you think R.C. Sproul is so important for our time, 2022? I think he's more important for 2022 than ever. I really do. <laughs> Uh, and the part of the reason is because R.C. R.C. believed in intellectual honesty and he, he absolutely despised what he called studied ambiguity. Hmm. Studied ambiguity is when you when you say something that sounds like it could be right, but the vagueness of language is a way, a method, a technique of infusing error without anybody knowing it. And that, hmm. that's something that the church does all the time. I, I, let me back that off. I, not the church does all the time. People who are in religious circles, religious people do that all the time. And it does find its way into the church, unfortunately. You know, but, you know, and, and you see, I mean, you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. People do it all the time. You know, they'll, they'll write something. and You're like, well, what do you mean by that? And they don't define it. And mm -hmm. then when someone finds them out to be false, they say, well, you misunderstood. Well, R.C., he hated that. His thing was, you need to be as clear and accurate as you possibly can. There should be no re room for misunderstanding. Be clear. So, you know, he watched all the liberal institutions, the seminaries, the colleges. He watched all these liberal institutions um, totally abandon the truth, and they would do it gradually through studied ambiguity. Mm. And so we need a recovery of sound doctrine and, and right articulation and clarity, clarity of truth. Uh, we have the best and only saving gospel in the world. Let's be clear about it. Let's be very clear about what that is and all the doctrines that pertain to it. So I think that's important for that for that time as well. And I also think, too, R.C., I mean, he studied philosophy, studied the history of ideas. Um, he saw the dangers of what he called statism. Uh, he was in league with Francis Schaeffer with that. He was really concerned about people worshiping the state and not worshiping mm. God. He was concerned about uh, liberal theology. Uh, R.C. wrote about wokeness before wokeness was even a thing. I mean, he understood pr progressivism. He understood liberalism. So he was constantly warning the church about the danger, the consequence of these ideas. And if, if he were on earth today with us, he would have an answer for all these things. And, and he would be standing for the truth along with the other brothers in Christ who stand for the, for the truth of the gospel. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's a sad thing for us that the Lord took him when he did, because uh, we could have really used his help uh, during this most recent season. But God is sovereign and he's all wise. And God mm -hmm. removed R.C. from this earth at the time he did. But boy, I really miss his clear voice and his accuracy and uh, just his command 
of truth. I mean, it was hard to argue with RC. And if you were going to fight with RC on doctrine, you better make sure you have your, your stuff in order because he knew the truth and he understood it clearly. Um, I miss that. We need more of that. Yes, we do. He, uh, he, his faith was tested just about at every point of his life, whether it was right away when, you know, his mother challenged him and, and was furious at him for coming to the Lord. You know, as we talked about his, his then girlfriend, um, opposed him, you know, eventually she came to the Lord, but, um, whether it was in the academy, he faced just about every single argument and reason for why he shouldn't be a Christian. Yeah. And um, so he was exposed to all the all the arguments against um, the five solas of the Reformation. I think one of my favorite moments in your book is when he actually goes and talks to a university professor, I believe, out west. And... Um, and the professor asked him, why are you making such a big deal about the inerrancy of Scripture? Why do you care so much about it? And then you write of him that he says, well, if you take away the word, you take away my life. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> and, and that's like the one of the defining moments in the book for me um, mm -hmm. and, and something that I want to put on my mantle as I think about him um, and as I think about my own life and ministry can I be so, so sold out to the truth that if someone were to take away the scriptures from me, that I could say, I've got nothing. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> and, and I think that, that in 2022, as I think about his, his impact and his importance for us, is, is his, his love for the truth and his razor sharp focus on it. He was not going to get distracted by the culture. He was going to be focused on the word. Mm -hmm. That's right. What is your favorite R.C. Sproul book? Oh boy, you had to ask. You know, I know. I, I, I probably got a top five, but I would say I really love his book, Faith Alone. Uh, it's the book that he kind of wrote his definitive response to the ECT battle. But not only does does he um, tackle the the issues and the battle and everything in that that book. But that's probably the most helpful um, articulation and defense and explanation of sola fide, of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So I, I um, before I even started writing this book, um, I had been studying the, the doctrine of justification for my own purposes. And I sat down. Usually what I'll do just as a Christian is when I want to work through some issue, I'll pull out the scriptures, obviously, but then from the scriptures, I'll find the, the best 10 or 12 books that have ever been written on the topic. And I'll just read those and try to, you know, get it straight in my mind. So I sat down with a stack of books on justification and RC's book was far away the most helpful book to helping me understand what this is all about. So I love faith alone. I love the holiness of God. I love chosen by God. Um, you know, all these books are just so good, so impactful. Believe it or not, he actually has a book uh, is his only biography really he wrote a book um, on Wayne Alderson called Stronger Than Steel, and um, it is riveting. It is absolutely mm. riveting. And uh, I, I don't know why he didn't write more biography because he was so good at it. But he just wrote this book and kind of went on to do other things. But um, that's a great little book. If you can find a copy, it's out of print now. But Stronger Than Steel by R.C. Sproul, really good. So he was a great writer. I just I love his stuff. Really good. Whether they're in the book or not, you know, What's maybe one or two stories that that are your favorite about R.C. Sproul? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, you you read and you research so much. And I, and I could have researched for for many more years. I mean, I did this in a very short amount of time. I think I spent about a year fully a year on research. But, you know, you hear so many stories and so many things that are just really, uh, really impactful. I think for me, um, I really do think just the whole encounter, the whole story behind the ECT battle. And, and again, I think that's hard because it was probably, it's the one that he's most known for. And I think people get drawn to controversy. I'm not, I don't, I don't love that story because of the controversy. I love that story. I love the, the, the encounter with him and, uh, and the ECT battle because it revealed the man. Mm -hmm. uh, it revealed what kind of metal it was. And there's a line, not that I, you know, want to be quoting my own lines here, but just thoughts that I've had as I was writing that I just resonated with was 
you know, Martin Luther took his stand in Wittenberg against his enemies, but R.C. took his stand in Florida against his friends. Mm-hmm. And, wow. and that was that was hard to do. I mean, it's easy to stand up there with people that you don't like and argue with them and fight with them and get angry. But when you're in a room for six hours arguing over doctrine with men that you love dearly, who you believe are totally flat wrong, and that's where you take your stand. I mean, you you respect a man who does that, who's willing to risk every friendship he has because he believes the truth. And uh, I think that uh, not only the truth on earth, but the truth in heaven vindicates his stance because he's absolutely right about the doctrine of justification by faith. So I admire R.C., not because he fought with people all the time, but I admire him because he was willing to do whatever it took to take a stand for, for Christ. And uh, I, I love that about him. So as you, you know, you spent a year studying RC and just kind of compiling your resources and, and you've no doubt noticed some things that, that you want to add to your own pastoral ministry, whether it's, you know, spiritually or just practical things. What are some, what are some um, aspects of RC's life and ministry that you have kind of cognizantly brought into your own? Yeah, several things, actually. Uh, I think we already talked about this, but even just the, the, the double-fisted approach to truth and grace to really try to focus in on, on being more clear with how I articulate truth, uh, but also more gracious of those who oppose. So really, really trying to keep those two twin pillars in my mind. One other practical thing is um, I really, in studying R.C.'s life, uh, became really interested in early church creeds. And um, he, he really was, it helped him greatly to understand those. And I'm not what you'd call a, a creedal person, uh, but I, I've been studying them recently. And I'm actually, I'm in the process of writing a book on early church creeds. And the, a, a second part of it will be um, some, some work on confessions as well, but really focusing in on the value of creeds. And um, that was part of his ministry. So he really wanted to popularize not just Reformed theology, uh, but early church theology, sound doctrine, as we understand through church history. So um, that really lit a fire for me for creedalism. And uh, so I'll be looking forward to finishing that book up. And uh, that'll be through Christian Focus coming out probably sometime in the next year or two uh, on uh, on creeds. So, yeah, I mean, he just really had a, a huge impact. I feel like I grew spiritually as a, as a believer in studying his life. And um, I, I was just tremendously grateful uh, for the opportunity to learn about him, to have the permission to write about him and publish a book about him, and uh, really just to kind of join in that endeavor to to further his ministry in whatever small way I can add to it. But really, was really appreciative of his life. You did a wonderful job in just ensuring that that you're going to leave a lot of the the private details of the family to the family. Yes, um, and I, I thought that was just such a wonderful way to honor RC, to honor Vesta, um, and to just, to just really look at the doctrinal issues that he dealt with through his life. I, I, I think that was a very godly way to handle this biography, Nate. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, and people have asked me, I've been asked that question several times, you know, how can we not talk about any of his sins? And my, my answer to that question is, well, which sins would you like me to talk about? Uh, and frankly, I don't know them all. I mean, I, like I said, I never knew the man personally, but when you have a man who's, whose wife is still here, whose children are still here, his grandchildren, his ministry is still going. Uh, what would you like to talk about to, to point out his, all of his flaws and errors? Which, which things? You know, you pass away and your wife is left behind. Uh, which things do you think that she'd like to read about in a book? Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, I understand the, the desire to see a person as being more human. And I, I get that. And that's, that's honest biography. But the purpose of this book is not to, to give a full account of every possible detail the purpose of the book is to to frame doctrinal uh, and and practical clarity and integrity to use and see RC's life as a model for how we are to do ministry, understanding mm-hmm. that he was not a perfect man at all. Uh, no man is, but but the the goal was really to use it as a vehicle to bring truth and conviction uh, to the church and 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 really see his life as helpful and useful to the church as a model. Uh, of, of a sound, uh, faithful man. Uh, mm-hmm. There'll be other times for other people to write about his sins and his flaws. That'll be for somebody else. That's not for me right now. Do you think you'll ever write a, a biography on John MacArthur? Uh, so my stock answer is no. <laughs> uh, a few people have asked me if I would. Um, 
I, I don't think I could. I, I, I love John MacArthur. Anybody who knows me knows I love the man. He's, he's meant a lot to me, uh, developing as a mm-hmm. pastor, as a preacher. Um, but I think, you know, looking at, at his life already, I mean, number one, who could top Ian Murray's biography, even though it doesn't include the last couple of years, obviously. But um, but there's just so, so many battles that John MacArthur has fought that are even still raging now. I mean, you'd have to really... Uh, it would get very messy. It, it would get very, um, very challenging because he yeah. has lost a lot of relationships. He has lost a lot in this life and he's been demonized and you'd, you'd have to really tackle that head on. And I just don't know if I'd have the, the energy, the gumption, uh, to do that as a biographer. Um, mm-hmm. but I do love him as a student. I'm, I'm a disciple. Uh, I care about him. I care about his family, uh, and I honor him, but, uh, no, my, Lord willing, my next biography will be someone who's been gone for a long time. So uh, that that would be my goal to to dig up someone who doesn't have family who's still here who could read the book and ask you questions about it. You know, yes. um, it's a it's a different a different experience. It's a very sobering experience when you know that his family's going to read what you write, and that's that's sobering. Mm-hmm. So yes. Well, you keep writing. We'll keep reading your books. They are <laughs> must read books, uh, Nate and. Um, God has used you mightily at our church, and I, I can tell you, I mean, you already know, I'm sure many have spoken to you about how God has used your writing in their churches as well. So we've talked about your book on creeds coming out. Um, I look forward to that. Do you have any other upcoming projects that we need to know about? Uh, not a lot that I can talk about just yet. Um, okay. I do have a, a revised edition of Why We're Protestant coming out through Christian Focus next, uh, the end of this year, possibly. So okay. I've added some material. I've done a little bit of editing. And so that'll be out uh, very soon, sort of a definitive edition of why we're Protestant. I'm excited about that. So, yeah, there's some stuff coming. And I'm like I said, I want to do more more biography. I've got some other stuff that's in the works that hasn't been landed on yet. But um, Lord willing, as long as he allows me to write, I'll try to write. So Nate Pickowitz, it's been a pleasure having you, my friend. Um, thanks for joining my humble little podcast um, we will make sure that uh, your book gets gets uh, bought, and um, hopefully every Theobro out there goes and finds R.C. Sproul, Defender of the Reformed Faith. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. I had a great time. Thank you, Justin.